Good afternoon again, church. Uh, please join me for a short word of prayer. Uh, Father, we know that it is in your word that we find your wisdom. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would reveal that to us this afternoon, uh, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where, where I am from, it is very common for adults to ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, in other words, what do you want to, to do when you grow up? And kids will give all sorts of answers to this question, you know, astronaut, pilot, professional football player, police officer, firefighter, doctor, you know, the list goes on. Uh, now, as you might expect, a, a child's answer to that question usually has very little to do with what career field they actually will choose when they grow up. Uh, their interests change over time. They realize that their strengths lie elsewhere. Perhaps their opportunities are limited. But very rarely you will find a child who even at a, a very young age is very determined and actively commits to pursuing a particular career field or a particular goal, even from a, a very young age. So their answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is not just a, a passing fancy, it's, it's actually a deep-seated desire, and they actually work, uh, and they work very hard to achieve that goal. Uh, Maybe the kid who trains for hours at some sport, Maybe the kid who goes and reads everything they can about space or about planes or whatever it is. Uh, but anyway, their, their answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, becomes a defining part of their life. It, it drives how they use their time and it drives how they use their energy. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke 2, verses 39 through 52. And in the, the text that we'll study this afternoon, in those verses, we are going to encounter Jesus as a, a child, uh, a young man at the age of 12 years old. It's actually the only account of Jesus as a child in the whole Bible, at least after his birth. And so that should really tell you something. It should tell you that this story is important. Uh, this story is worth paying attention to. But what Luke really wants to draw your attention to in these verses is that even at the young age of 12, Jesus had a deep and a profound understanding of who he was. He was the son of God. And Jesus had a deep and profound understanding of his mission on earth. And so in, in verse 49 of our text, in the only words we have recorded of Jesus as a child in the whole Bible, Jesus says this to his parents who have come back to Jerusalem to search for him. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Or it might be translated, didn't you know it was necessary for me to be about my father's business? Yeah. Jesus understood that he was the son of God who had come to do his father's will. And as Luke's gospel unfolds, as we will see in the coming weeks, Jesus remained absolutely faithful to that mission. So unlike children who do not know themselves well, who do not understand themselves well, who will give many answers to that question of what do you want to be when you grew up, whose interests constantly change, in contrast, Jesus knew who he was, and he never wavered 
from his mission. So with that in mind, please uh, follow along as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Well, what I would like to do this afternoon is simply to, to walk through this story verse by verse, just to go through the verses of this story and point out a few things that we learn about Jesus as we go. Uh, so really four specific things that we learn about Jesus. These aren't really going to be a sermon outline, but we're just going to see these throughout these verses. Uh, first, that Jesus is fully human. He has profound wisdom. Jesus is fully obedient and that Jesus is the Son of God, fully committed to doing the will of his Father. Jesus is fully human, he has profound wisdom, he is fully obedient, and he is the Son of God, fully committed to doing the will of his Father. And that last statement, that Jesus is the Son of God and fully committed to the will of his Father, is really at the heart of the text, or really what Luke's main idea is from this text. And Luke's goal, as it has been for so much of his gospel so far, is that you would rightly see Jesus for who he is, that you would see these things about Jesus, that you would know who he is, that you would understand what Jesus came to do. Well, so first, let's uh, turn our attention to verses 39 and 40, which really encompasses Jesus's life before the age of 12. So in these first two verses, Luke transitions us from the time when Jesus was an infant all the way to the time when Jesus was 12. So if you remember last week, the text we looked at, Mary and Joseph had just taken Jesus up to Jerusalem. They had presented him to the Lord. He's probably a month or two old at this time. And then in verse 39, Luke records the family returning to Nazareth in Galilee. Now we know from, from Matthew chapter 2, a parallel gospel account that prior to returning to Nazareth, Joseph and Mary had fled to Egypt with Jesus. They did this to escape from King Herod, who through the wise men had gotten wind that people were looking for a king in Bethlehem. Uh, being the current king, he did not like that idea, so he ordered all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two be put to death. So to escape that order, uh, the angel, an angel visits Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt to escape from King Herod. 
so all that to say some period of time elapsed between the first half of verse 39 when they completed everything in Jerusalem and the second half of verse 39 here in Luke when they traveled back to Nazareth. Uh, so Matthew includes uh, them fleeing to Egypt. Luke, it is not important to his narrative, so he does not. Uh, but that account in Matthew, that account in Matthew 2, is really all that we learn about Jesus between the time that he is an infant, between that time that he is presented at the temple, and till, until the time that he is 12. Uh, Luke does not fill in those details for us and instead gives us two whole verses, two verses to these 12 years of Jesus' life. And as we'll see in verse 51 and verse 52 of our text, Luke actually only devotes two verses to Jesus' life from age 12 to age 30, or the, the beginning of Jesus' Jesus's public ministry. So outside of this brief interlude, this brief pause that Luke puts on this story about Jesus being left behind in Jerusalem, we get four verses to roughly 30 years of Jesus' life. And again, that should tell you something about this story we are studying today. And that should tell you that Luke thinks it's very important. It's kind of like if, if someone asks you about your day or your week, what you've been up to, you probably don't go into excruciating detail about uh, how long you brushed your teeth or about like your one shoe didn't feel quite right when you tried to put it on. And no, you tell them the important things that happen to you in your, your day, in your week, and your month. No, that is what Luke is doing here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke picks this one episode from Jesus' early life and goes into detail about it. And so as, as readers of the Bible, as students of the Bible, that should tell you to pay attention. Actually, when... Whenever the biblical narrative slows down like that, that is a way that the biblical writers would tell you to pay attention. So if you notice in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is quite a lot of content, a lot of space in their Gospel, a lot of writing is put on one week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, when he enters Jerusalem, when he's crucified, and when he was raised. Uh, it goes somewhere probably to a quarter of a third of each of the Gospels. Well, they do that because it's the most important part. It's what they want to draw your attention to. It's what the Gospels are building up to. And so in a, in a similar way, Luke is slowing down the narrative here, and he is pointing you to something that is important. But though Luke only gives us two verses about the first 12 years of Jesus's life, he makes at least one important truth about Jesus very clear. And that is that Jesus is fully human. Now, I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, it can be easy to forget that he was a child in the same way that you and I were children. Now, Jesus grew up, he became strong, he grew strong physically, he developed mentally and emotionally. He increased in wisdom as we see in these verses today. Uh, Jesus learned how to crawl, he learned how to walk, he learned how to feed himself and how to dress himself. He learned the other games that the children around him play. I presume as he got older, he got better at those games. He learned how to read and to write, he helped around the house, he learned the trade of carpentry with his father Joseph. He grew and developed as 
all children grow and develop. Well, the author of Hebrews also tells us that speaking of Jesus, although he was the son, so although Jesus was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, when the author of Hebrews writes that in Hebrews 5, 8, he does not mean that Jesus was at one time disobedient, one time did not follow the will of his father, and then eventually learned how to obey. That's, that's not what he means. No, instead, as, as Tom Schreiner, one New Testament scholar, explains it, Jesus was perfected in his experience by learning obedience in his sufferings. His perfection so Jesus was perfect. His perfection was an abstraction, or you might say a, a theory. It hadn't been put to the test. His perfection was an abstraction until he obeyed God in the concrete realities and travails of everyday human experience. His sufferings and death equipped and qualified him to serve as a priest. He learned what it was to please God as a child, a teenager, and an adult. So as Jesus grew up, he was given more responsibilities. He had new experiences. There were new trials that came his, his way, uh, the same way that we give our children more responsibilities as they grow older. The responsibilities of life become greater. Uh, trials become perhaps more significant. And so while these things put Jesus' obedience to the test at each of these new stages of, of life, so uh, one of the things that it means when the Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom or increased in wisdom or became filled with wisdom is that he learned to obey as he suffered greater and greater trials and temptations and took on new responsibilities. As the difficulties of life grew, Jesus continued to obey. We see in these verses that Jesus was fully human, but Jesus lived as God intended all men and women to live, but none did outside of him in perfect obedience and perfect submission to the will of his heavenly father. And so that idea really brings us to what is at the heart of Luke's text, and that is this episode from Jesus's life when he is 12 years old. So uh, we're going to turn our attention to the heart of the text, and we're going to turn our attention to that story. And Luke sets the scene for us in verses 41 and 42. So every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, it seems like every year they traveled up to Jerusalem for Passover. It was one of three occasions every year where male Israelites were instructed to go to Jerusalem to uh, worship the Lord, to celebrate a, a feast to the Lord. So again, as we saw last week, we are again getting a highlight or some attention placed on the obedience of Mary and Joseph to God's law. Well, uh, so they go up to Jerusalem, they, they celebrate the Passover, but then things get interesting as the return journey starts. So if we look again at verse 43, after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. 
When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. It seems as if Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem among a a pretty large group of family and perhaps friends, uh, such a large group that evidently it didn't raise any alarm bells when they don't see Jesus as they're departing from Jerusalem. It would not have been unusual for him to be with perhaps a friend or another family member, and they just expect that they'll catch up with him at some point during the day. Uh, Well, this is not what happened. It isn't clear whether Jesus intentionally stayed behind, that he uh, went to the temple right off the bat, or if he is accidentally left behind. But at the end of the first day's journey, Mary and Joseph realize that Jesus is, is not there. So, you know, as any good parent would, they rush back to Jerusalem to, to see if they can find him. And they do find him after three days. I'm not sure if that three days is actually meaning that they searched Jerusalem for three days. I think it's likely that day one was their travel out of Jerusalem, day two is their travel back, and and day three they search for and find Jesus in the temple. And they find him in a, a place that is perhaps unexpected for a boy of 12, and I think it's likely that they find him doing something that you would not expect a boy of 12 to be doing. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking him, asking them questions. Uh, If you stop to think about it, that is something of an amazing statement on its own. Here is Jesus, as we have seen in Luke so far, Lord, Messiah, Savior, Son of God, fully God himself, sitting and listening to teachers in the temple. As one pastor put it, this is the only time ever in the Gospels that Jesus is the learner. The only time. He is the student here. He will never be the student again. And so, as Luke's narrative continues, as we fast forward to Jesus' public ministry, we know that Jesus is the teacher. So we're going to think about this a little bit more in just a minute, but uh, just admittedly, it is hard to understand how the one who created all things That's Jesus, the one who is the wisdom of God. Again, Jesus could also be said to increase in wisdom. And yet we find both of these things taught in the Bible. And so in this episode that we had, again, we'll come back and we'll think about that idea a little bit more in in a few minutes. But uh, when we have this episode of Jesus in the temple and, and sitting among the teachers, I think we see here Jesus growing in wisdom, being filled with wisdom. He humbly takes the attitude of a a student. He sought out those who were known to be teachers. He sat among them. He listened to them. He asked them questions. And so, brothers and sisters, what can you learn from Jesus's example here? I think first is it is a good thing to pursue wisdom that you should desire to grow in wisdom. Proverbs 4.7 says, wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Proverbs 16.16, get wisdom, how much better it is than gold, and get understanding. It is preferable to silver. 
it is a good thing to desire wisdom and to pursue wisdom. And the Bible says that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. And so part of of biblical wisdom is to have a, a knowledge of God, to learn who he is, to learn what he commands. But biblical wisdom is more than just having some knowledge of these things. Biblical wisdom can be defined as discerning what is right and wrong and choosing to act in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So it can be defined as discerning what is right and wrong in a given situation and then choosing to act in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So then how can you pursue wisdom and increase in wisdom? I think first, pray, right? We saw this a number of weeks ago, actually a few months ago now in James, that God gives wisdom to those who ask. Wisdom is a gift from God, and you need his spirit to grow in wisdom, so pray for wisdom. But you also need to pursue a a greater knowledge of God. Again, you can look to Jesus' example here. He went and sat among the teachers and listened. By putting himself among the teachers, he was putting himself in the place to hear from God's word. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in wisdom, you need to know God's word. If you want to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong in a given situation, you need to know what God says is right and is wrong. You need to know about God's character. If you want to fear the Lord, you need to know who he is. These things are revealed in his word. To increase in wisdom, you need to immerse yourself in God's word. Psalm 1-2 says, as as Mark just read for us a few moments ago, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This was Jesus, but Jesus is an example to us of how we should pursue wisdom as well. So to increase in wisdom, read God's word, study God's word, ask questions of God's word, listen attentively to the preaching of God's word, seek to apply God's word to your life. When you don't understand something from God's word, ask another brother or sister to help you understand. And also notice from uh, this story, this account in Jesus's life, that we can gain wisdom in community. Jesus was sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. In other words, they were discussing God's word. Brothers and sisters, that's what members of the church are to do together. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So first, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Uh, The bottom line is that, that we need each other to grow in wisdom. We're to teach and admonish each other. We're to help one another fight sin. This is really what we mean when we say uh, you ought to be pursuing discipleship as a Christian. A discipleship is to teach one another and encourage one another with the truths of Scripture that you all might grow in wisdom. So I'd humbly suggest that if your vision of the Christian life is to come to church most Fridays, Read your Bible by yourself sometimes. That is not the same vision of the Christian life for the church that the Bible holds forth. The vision the Bible holds forth is brothers and sisters who are encouraging one another with God's word. They're encouraging one another throughout the week that they might help one another grow. 
And that could be as, as simple as meeting someone for coffee once a month to study the Bible and to pray. It could be as simple as, as having someone over for dinner and choosing to talk about uh, what was preached the week before, discussing the sermon and how you have been applying it to your life. Uh, the point is that, that God's word is to be a central part of our relationships because we need each other to grow in wisdom. And, and more than we need each other, we need God's word to grow in wisdom. Well, so we see Jesus sitting here among the teachers. He's, he's sitting here among the teachers in these verses. But though Jesus may be growing in wisdom and increasing in wisdom here, Luke also makes it clear that Jesus has a remarkable wisdom. Jesus has a remarkable wisdom. The teachers were astonished at the level of wisdom and insight that Jesus has. They were astounded at his understanding. Uh, Jesus is something like one of those child prodigies, you know, like the, the kids who can go to college at age 12 or, or 13, graduate when they're 15. Well, this is, this is Jesus. He amazes the teachers with his knowledge and his understanding. And so whatever the Bible means by the fact that Jesus learned wisdom or increased in wisdom, we also see that Jesus has a wisdom and understanding that goes beyond what he had been taught. As the son of God, he is full of wisdom. And again, that, that really points us to the main point of the text, which we find that in Jesus's response, which we find in Jesus's response to the questions of his parents. So look again at, at verse 48 of the text. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Well, so when Mary and Joseph find Jesus, it seems as if they are equally astonished at his wisdom. Uh, they don't fully understand what is going on uh, themselves. Uh, themselves, this again points to, I think, Jesus's unique wisdom as the Son of God. But, you know, once they recover from their astonishment, I think they do what any parent would probably do in this situation. Where have you been? Why weren't you in the traveling party? Don't you know how much we have been worried about you? Although his parents were worried and they questioned him, uh, do know that Jesus had not sinned in staying behind in Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what led Jesus to, to staying behind in Jerusalem. But whatever it was, it was not sin. He was not dishonoring Mary and Joseph in being left behind in Jerusalem. I think this is why in verse 51, Luke is so careful to point out that as they return to Nazareth, Jesus is obedient. Uh, he has drawn our attention to that fact about Jesus before. He draws our attention to that again right after this, I think, to emphasize that Jesus is obedient. Well, Jesus responds to their questions by saying, well, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know where I would be? And Jesus seems surprised. Hadn't they understood who he was? Hadn't the angel Gabriel come and visited Mary? Hadn't Joseph received a visit by an angel telling them to flee to Egypt? Hadn't Mary conceived as a virgin? Didn't at Jesus' birth shepherds come telling about the angels who had appeared to them announcing his birth? Did they not know who he was? Did they not understand that he would be in his father's house or about his father's business? 
And so again, what, what Luke is showing here is that whatever it meant for Jesus to increase in wisdom, both before he was 12 and after he was 12, at least by this point in his life, he understood exactly who he is and he understood exactly what he came to do. He understood that he was the eternally existent son of God. Yes, Jesus is, is fully human, but Jesus is also fully God. And Jesus, at the age of 12, knows this. Now, to say that Jesus is the son of God is not to say that Jesus was created by God or born of God. There was not a relationship between God and Mary that produced Jesus. No, to say Jesus is the son of God is to say that he is of the same essence and nature of God. He is God himself. Now, Christians believe that God is one, one in essence and nature, but exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one, and yet they are three persons, each equally God. Well, as the Son of God, Jesus understood that his true Father was God and that his mission on earth was to do the will of his heavenly Father. As Jesus says later in his ministry in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So as, as one pastor put it, the main teaching of the passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. And so in Jesus' response here, when he says that didn't they know it was necessary for him to be in his father's house or about his father's business, and Jesus was asserting that his highest loyalty was to God the Father, not his earthly parents. Now, uh, this did not mean that he was going to dishonor Mary and Joseph or be disobedient to his earthly parents. Again, see verse 51. But his mission on earth was to do the will of the Father. It was to accomplish redemption for God's people by dying on the cross. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And friends, Jesus' devotion to his heavenly Father is to be a model to you. To become a Christian is to become a son or daughter of God. It is to be united with Christ. And thus Christians, Christians' highest loyalty is to be God, to God their Father above any earthly loyalty. Christians are called to, to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. To remain faithful no matter what earthly circumstances they might face. They are called to submit their will to his and to follow him wherever he might call them. I think even some in this church, some who are members of this church, have had family relationships damaged because of their professed loyalty to Jesus Christ, to say, because they have said publicly, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, that I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, praise be to God, they were showing that their highest loyalty was to God. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Well, friends, if you are here today and, and you know yourself not to be a Christian, know that to be a Christian, to be a Christian means that you must forsake your old loyalties and allegiances 
and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's to confess that you have a new loyalty, a higher loyalty, that following Jesus, that obeying God's commands is your highest calling. It is to confess that your highest allegiance is to God, not any other God, not anything else on this earth, not any other relationships. Your highest loyalty is to God. And that's simply what it means to repent and believe the good news. Although Mary and Joseph had both been visited by angels at this point, though they had both been told who Jesus was, we see in verse 50 that they still do not understand. They still do not understand his answer. Uh, Jesus, at, at age 12, seems to have a greater understanding than even his parents. Again, he had a unique and divine wisdom as the Son of God. And so in these verses from Luke, we see that Joseph, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. But how are we to understand that truth? How are we to understand that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? How are we to understand that he grew in wisdom and, and learned wisdom and yet has all knowledge? How are we to understand that he was all-powerful and could heal sickness and disease? Uh, he could calm the seas and the wind with uh, a word, and yet he needed to eat and sleep and rest? How are we to understand these things? Well, uh, theologians have various explanations or uh, ways in which we can understand this, uh, this truth that Jesus is the God-man, that he is fully man and that he is fully God. But even with those explanations, we have to admit that at, at some level, it is a mystery. We cannot fully understand how both of these things can be true. But we also affirm that the Bible clearly teaches both. Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes when he came to earth. He did not become any less God when he came to earth. He remained fully God. And yet he took on the fullness of humanity. And friends, Christians also affirm that we need a Savior who is both fully human and fully divine. And Jesus must be a man to reverse the curse of Adam, who sinned and brought sin into the world. Jesus had to be a man to obey where Adam failed and reverse that curse. He must be a man to die in our place, to die in our place as a representative on the cross. He must be a man to be an example to us of how we might live as men and women. He must be a man in order to be a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who endured suffering, who got tired, and who can sympathize with us when we undergo these same trials and temptations. And yet only a divine Savior could bear the full wrath of God. Only a divine Savior could earn for us and restore us to righteousness and life. Only a divine Savior could truly make peace with God. Jesus was fully man and fully God, and Christian, we need him to be both. Well, as I bring this sermon to a close, I want to, to briefly draw your attention to the final couple of verses in this text, verses 51 and 52. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Although Mary doesn't seem to fully understand Jesus's identity and, and mission, she keeps these things in her heart. Uh, she meditates on them and, and I think eventually comes to a full understanding of just who Jesus is and just what he came to do. 
But as for Jesus, he was continuing to do the will of his father. He continued to obey his parents. His life at this point was not glamorous, but it was the life his heavenly father called him to for his first 30 or so years of life. His, his public ministry would not begin for another 15 or, or 18 years after this episode that we just studied. Uh, but what is he doing between the end of chapter 2 and the, the beginning of chapter 3 in which we really see the beginning of his public ministry? Well, he was continuing to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. Undoubtedly, new trials and sufferings came, but he remained obedient. He continued to learn obedience through suffering. He continued to learn things he would need before beginning his public ministry. Uh, this was a time of preparation for his public ministry. And during this time of preparation, Jesus remained fully pleasing to his heavenly father. This is what Luke means when he writes that God favored him. God was well pleased in Jesus from the time of his birth until he was 12. We see in verse 40 that Luke writes that God's grace was on him. Again, basically saying that God favored him, that God was well pleased in him. God continued to be pleased in him throughout the rest of his childhood and young adult life. See verse 52. God would announce that he was well pleased in him when Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his public ministry. See Luke 3, 22. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. And God would continue to be well pleased in Jesus as he suffered and died for his people. And he showed it by raising him from the dead. Now, friends, Jesus came to do the will of his father and he did it perfectly. And as he progressively accomplished the will of his father, he grew in favor with God and with man. And so, brothers and sisters, as, as we close, my prayer is that you will marvel at Jesus Christ and see him for who he is. He's fully human, and in his humanity, he provides you an example that you might follow. But his example should encourage you to seek wisdom and grow in wisdom, should encourage you to obey your heavenly father, to submit your own will to that of your heavenly father, and seek to please him in all that you do. But you should also rejoice that you have a Savior who did what you could not do and was perfectly pleasing to his Heavenly Father, who perfectly obeyed his Heavenly Father, who perfectly submitted his will to the will of his Heavenly Father. You should rejoice that you have a divine Savior who bore the full wrath of God for sin in your place, a divine Savior who died for you that, you, that he might one day present you in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless before him. Jesus came to earth, submitted his will to the Father, and died that you might be found pleasing in God's sight because Jesus is pleasing in God's sight. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your Savior. And friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, my prayer is that you too see Jesus for who he is and come to understand what he came to do. My prayer is that you repent of your sins, place your faith in him, and commit to follow him for the rest of your lives. Friends, that is truly the only way to find favor with God. It is not through your own righteousness. It's because Jesus came and was righteousness for you. He is the wisdom of God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Let's pray.